Are you working on your author career, but struggling to get that first book published? Does the goal of being an author seem too lofty? Or thoughts of having multiple books and making a full-time living are as fantastical as living in Cinderella's castle? Welcome to Discovered Wordsmiths, a podcast where aspiring authors can be heard. Join Steven Schneider as he finds and talks to authors you may not know, but authors that have gotten their foot on the author career path. Hear what they've done to get there and where they want to go now. Settle back. It's time for a bit of inspiration and advice. Come listen to today's Discovered Wordsmith. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Discovered Wordsmiths. And this is a great big episode today. Uh, First, I have Roland on and Roland and I have a long chat about AI and chat GPT. Now, I know every podcast, every author, that's all anyone's talking about lately, it seems. Everything you go on. Uh, But we can't avoid it. That's the topic. That's what's affecting everybody right now the most. Uh, That's why you're hearing so much about it. And so he and I have a good discussion about it. And that's what I love. It's not just reporting some news. It's a back and forth between he and I, how it's affecting us personally, how we see it in the author community and other authors using it or not using it. And that's the best part about what Roland and I do and chat about is how it's affecting us and the authors like us. And then I have Ben Monroe on and Ben is a horror author and I don't get a lot of horror authors on here on on here on. Um, but uh, I love horror. It's one of my favorite genres. I do another podcast with my buddy Reese. We do horror movie reviews. And uh, recently we had Jeff Strand on talking about his novelization of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and that will be on here soon. So I've got uh, some horror coming up. It's a great genre if you love it. Some great new books. So I talked to Ben about his book, and then we discuss the uh classic horror and the roots of horror and where we come from, which is interesting because a lot of the movies Reese and I do are classic horror. And then we can see where today's horror got their inspiration. So it's a great talk with Ben about this and how it's affected horror genre and his writing also. So sit back and listen. This is a great episode. Uh, It's a little longer than some because I've got Roland and Ben on here. So let's take a listen. All right, so uh, it's been a couple weeks since we talked. Uh, yeah. Lots of things keep happening, as always. So what do we got going on for the authors in the world that uh, is exciting or interesting stuff? Well, I've got some stuff, and I'm curious what's 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 big for you. Oh, well, for me personally, uh, I've got an author table I got set up uh, for local school and I'm doing an author talk and I've got a round table discussion I'm in and I'm putting together a panel. So in my little world, uh, there's just a whole lot going on. That's exciting. And recently I got to go and meet MacGyver, Richard Dean Anderson. Uh, I got his picture right up there. That's Um, amazing. And I also then went to a, it was a busy weekend. I went to two different conferences that were six hours apart. Um, and I went down and I met one of my favorite authors, Jeff Strand, got to meet him in person. And I also met Armin Shimmerman, who played Quark on DS9. No so, way. Yeah. That, I mean, exciting weekend for me. So, wow. Did you yeah, get his new book? His, he has, he's got a book that came out recently. Yes. And, and I talked to him on the podcast about that book. Um, it's a trilogy. And I kind of describe it to, so people understand it is alternative fan fiction Shakespeare history. It takes real life Edwardian events that were happening in the real world and then takes the characters from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night and puts them in the real world events and writes the story. So, So, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, And it was fun meeting him. Great guy. You know, he's one of those guys that would come and sit down at the table and you wouldn't even know he's you know, been on TV and movies and stuff. So yeah, he's such a cool guy. Yeah. yeah I'm looking forward to reading that book, those books. Yes. I, of course they, they had a slip cover edition with all three of them hardback and he signed all three for me, but they're just really beautiful. Uh, the company jump master press, actually a lot of their authors are coming on the podcast. Uh, so oh, the next sweet. couple months, there's going to be a lot of jump master press authors. So it's awesome. a really good event. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, congratulations on meeting. That's amazing. Yes, thank you. Good guy. It was fun. Good. I don't conference. know. 
God, it's such a thrill. I mean, I went to a conference, you know, it's been a couple of months, but um, like I met so many authors that were like my heroes. It was so, it was so cool. Todd McCaffrey. He was like a nice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a cool guy. And, and that's Kevin J. Anderson, Dean Wesley, Dean Wesley Smith, um, James Artemis Owen. Like there's these, these wow. cool people that were so, yeah. And, and authors are so much cooler than actors because they'll talk to you. They don't, for the most part, there's a few, but even the big ones don't, they don't come across as egotistical and I'm better yeah. than you at all. Um, this scares that care conference, Sherilyn Kenyon was there and she's pretty big. She's got a million yeah. out and I just started chatting with her and she just chatted, you know, and you don't get that, you know, when you get the big stars, it's lines and curtains and bodyguards, you know, the authors, yeah. not so much. I, I love that world much better. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. So, uh, in the news, in the news, (laughs) well, okay. So there's, there's two kind of subjects to talk about. One, we're going to have to talk about AI because everyone's been talking about AI, right? What's, what's AI? I haven't heard it. I know AI. (laughs) And there's also a a new report on author incomes. And I don't know if you saw this one. This was by, by Ally, the, um, Alliance of Independent Authors. I heard about it. Yes. And I, I mean, I can send you the link. I don't know if you do show notes with that. I can send you the link to the okay. article. Perfect. And the the part of it that I liked the most was that finally somebody is reporting more on indie authors as well. Yes. I mean, written word media has done it for the past you know few years. Yes. So they've done a great job. And but the more of these organizations that will talk about this and get it out there the better because it was pretty clear that in the breakdown that in general, the average indie author is making more, can make more than the average traditionally published author. Wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So there are definitely, you know, there are definitely outliers in both areas. Right. And um, I mean, I mean, we, we, you know, big name authors, you know, they're going to make a lot of money either way, you know, on either side. Right. And part of it is like, you know, because they're big name authors, but because they're big name authors, they also become, you know, they also make more money. So it's kind of goes both ways. Um, but one of the things that was, I don't know, it was just sort of an eye opener. And there's a lot of people took it as negatives because they're saying that, the, you know, if you look at it, most the way they broke it down is like you know there's the averages and there's the means and the medians like all those kinds of things i'm not a math guy so i don't really understand i was on another podcast and my friend pippa explained it to me and um, i said i know english i don't know math (laughs) and i don't know statistics but you know like the big the people who make millions of dollars like can really bring it up because it's not some people are saying, well, it looks like the average indie author makes eighty thousand dollars a year from their book from their books. Right. Well, but an average is so much different. Like you're you're averaging in the like the people who make millions of dollars with all the people who make, you know, a hundred dollars a year. Right? right. And who took the survey. Right. Right. So, but it looks like when you kind of do it on they're estimating that a lot of that most authors, you know, you can sort of expect if you do, if you're doing the work, you can make around $12,000 a year, which is not a lot. So people are saying, Oh, that's poverty. That's way below poverty levels. Right. But it's one of those things where if this was an artist, if you were a painter, like not a house painter, but the other kind of painter, you know, artist, you know, and you were making $12,000 a year, you'd probably find another job. I mean, like you would have something else that you're doing. Right. So this is not, I mean, these are artistic things that we're doing and we choose to do them because we want to be artistic. And it's really hard to say that, you know, you should have a, there should be a, like a minimum wage for authors or something like that. And it's not that these authors aren't, you know, but there was such a, it was interesting because there wasn't such a huge disparity between traditional authors. People were saying that traditional authors are being taken advantage of, which maybe a lot of them are. By not being paid the royalties that they sh- that they should be paid for what they do, but when you factor that in, and then you look at indies who make quite a bit more in royalties for their work, right? They're not making that much more, right? So but still- again, like people say, if you're a traditionally published, 
you don't have to go find an editor and pay an editor. You don't have to go find a book cover artist and pay the book or graphic designer or whatever. Uh, you don't have to get a proofreader. You don't, you know, that's part of what they do. You still have to do the marketing a lot. Uh, you mm -hmm. still have to get out, you know, go to conferences and shake hands. Uh, so if you take the cost of that 12,000 and cut out the editor costs and book cover costs, it probably makes them just about the same. I would bet. It's hard to say because, you know, like I have traditionally published books and I have indie published books. And if I sell one of my, if I go out and push one of my traditionally published books, I might make a dollar per copy. But if I, you know, for a $20 book, if I sell a $15 book, one of my indie published books, which is comparable, $15 paying paperback, I make $6. Right. And then it yeah. also, if you have that one book, if you sell 10 copies as opposed to 10,000 copies, now that cost of the editor is a lot less for that, yeah. for that book too. So it's sort of like, you know, what do they say? 12 or one half dozen of the other, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, those things. So it's, I'm, I, I bring this up so authors have an understanding that you can do it both ways and that being a traditional author is not automatically like the road to success. Right. And being an indie author is also not an automatic road to success. Right. So in all of these, I mean, you know, there were some very wise words and you can go on Facebook and Twitter and you can find comments about this, these articles and the wiser, the wisest heads we'll say, or the wiser heads were saying that, you know, like you still have to, you know, be able to do the work. Sometimes it takes years to get to the point where you're making that $80,000 a year. Right. And um, if you, you have to do it, if you love it, like you, you will only continue to do it if you love it, if you, you know, and that there might be other reasons. And for me, the way I'm able to do it is to, um, do other things that I love as well until my, until my writing started to make more money. Right. And that's one of the great things about, uh, independent author and owning all of it, all, every piece of it, you can decide that you want to do something that's going to possibly bring in more money. It, you know, if you mm -hmm. think the covers are what's not selling, you can hire someone to get another cover. And in today's world, if it's digital, you could even rewrite chapter four and add another chapter in and re-release the digital book. Traditionally published, that's harder to do. If they say, well, yeah. it didn't sell, it's done. But with an indie, you can make that choice to keep pushing it and keep growing it and uh, get more for your return on it. Uh, and that Absolutely. ally... Uh, uh, survey. I, I remember I got that because I'm I am a member of Ally. I didn't qualify because I'm I'm not selling enough books right now uh, for that. So that is one thing that they didn't just take authors who had like a book out but hadn't sold anything in ten months. Uh, mm -hmm. So there were some qualifications for taking that, which I, I think the main reason wasn't to you know skew it higher or anything like that. I think it was to get the professional authors who are really trying to be full-time authors. Uh, that's how I took it. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. But there, you know, I was reminded that, you know, I have favored authors over the years, right? Some of my Jerry Pornell and Larry Niven, you know, like I grew up with mostly with science fiction, a little bit of fantasy, but my favorite science fiction writers, a lot of them had, you know, they were college professors as right. well. Like right. not teaching writing either. They were teaching like science and astrophysics and stuff right. like that. So it wasn't writing related. They were teaching um, a couple of them advised for like NASA and Caltech, right? As jobs. Like it was not like, oh, I'm just doing it out of the the, the goodness of my heart. I mean, I'm they, they probably would have because like, can you imagine? <laughs> being, it's right? a dream job. I'm getting paid for this. <laughs> but they were contractors for NASA and Caltech and- you know, it's like, yeah, there were some of my favorite authors that became full-time authors, but I don't know that they were full-time authors when they first started out. And, you know, right. and I think of how many, and think of how many of them were, uh, were not. So, yeah. Right. So I took it as a, as a positive because the, the, a lot of the previous surveys made it sound like it, like being an author was a dead end. And also that the only way to go was to be traditional. So now we can see clearly that there are multiple ways to go. And for me, I've chosen to do both indie and traditional. So we, you know, calling it a hybrid. 
Right. And that's another great choice today. You can make that choice. Each book, is this a traditional book? If, if this an independent book, do I have an agent and a publishing house that wants this book? Do I want to do that? You got a whole lot more choices. You have much more control over what you want to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Cool. 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 We'll make sure and put uh, that, that link in the show notes for everybody. I will, I will send it to you. Perfect. Uh, and then the other thing I just wanted to talk about a little bit is AI, because we've talked about yes. it before. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone is, you know, putting their stance. Like, like I, I don't like. I'm not the kind of author who goes out on Facebook and says, "I just want to state for the record that my stance on, you know, AI is yeah. this and that." Right? Because <laughs> because it also depends on what you're using AI for. Like, I use Grammarly. I use Pro Writing AI. Right. right. You no, know, there's AI behind the scenes there. Right. And, and I've seen authors. I've heard authors on podcasts say we're no longer supporting Grammarly because they've added AI to it and we're not supporting that. Well, now again, we just said it's your, it's your life, your choice, but I think you're fighting the uh, rising tide. <laughs> well, I mean, I just want to, okay. So if you, you can push back on this, not you, but one uh, can push back general, on this, yes. right? And like, what is your end game? Because it's going to happen. Right. So you can make a stink about it. You can talk about how to use it ethically and stuff like that, or how to use it, how you want to use it and how you, how you think other people should want, should want to use it. But if you just say I'm boycotting it and like, I'm never going to use it well, other people are going to pass you by because people who use Grammarly are going to pass you by because they can make their book tidy enough before they send it to their editor. So they're going to be able to get work out of the, through the system faster and publish better books more often. Let's yeah. put it that way. That's at the bare minimum, right? And if you look at it, like, you know, editors were complaining about Grammarly and pro-writing it a few years ago, but now many of them use it. They use it as part of their editing process. Right. Like they'll use it as the, you know, like, because they want to use their brains on the big picture stuff, developmental editing, complicated sentence structure, making things simpler. And like pro-writing and Grammarly don't always do those things. Very, they say they do, <laughs> but like I ran, like one of my clients, I ran through pro-writing aid through the system, ran these reports, long sentences. And there was like, well, how come it didn't flag this as a long sentence? The sentence is unreadable, right? <laughs> but it didn't, you know, it didn't, but it caught some of the other ones, right? So so it's not perfect and it's not great. So, but you use it as part of your editing process, right. because if you want to compete as an editor nowadays, you probably have to do that. It, right? it probably helps you get some of the little things out of the way. So why spend three hours to get all the commas when you run it through pro writing aid, it tells you where the commas are. Now you can spend three hours on other stuff. So instead of telling a client, Hey, this is going to be 12 hours and you have people going, it's going to be what? How much they can, you can yeah. say, well, it's going to be nine hours and I'll give you all the same stuff. You know, it's, it's kind of what ACX with Audible is doing. Well, we lowered the price. So you'll sell more, you'll make more money by selling more instead of higher costs for a mm -hmm. few. It, 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 yeah. I mean, I know we could sit around all night arguing which way is better or not, <laughs> but like you said, it's how it is. So we got to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like right now it's not perfect, but get, this is the time to get comfortable with, edit to some degree. And for instance, I, you know, I helped a client edit a book and we used pro writing aid. And then we, I said, you know, she said, is it done? I said, well, you need to, we, you need to, I'm not a proofreader. You need to hire a proofreader for the final or like get a bunch of beta readers or something like that. She didn't have time for the beta readers. Did the, hired the proofreader and all sorts of things, not typos, because if a word wasn't there, we found it. Pro writing aid, Grammarly, words, spell checker, all these things. They found the, the words that weren't words. But what it didn't find was words that shouldn't, that should have been a different word. Right. Yes. That it Even though to do. me, when the proofreader read it and when I read it after she said, here's the, here's the correction, I went, oh, well, that sentence didn't make sense with that word in it. But these AI tools didn't catch it. Right. Because it's the right word. Just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So the other things that, you know, I think, I don't know that as many people are upset about Grammarly and ProWriting Aid. And I think when they, the, the recent pushback to ProWriting Aid was that was there, they indicated that they were going to, if there's a sentence that's awkward, we're going to here, you can click this button and we'll use AI to suggest a different way to say it. Right. I think that was the part that they were upset about. Right. Um, so I don't know. 
but I've used that and I've told other people, I'm like, you, you can't think of, I use pro writing aid. I liked it better than Grammarly mm-hmm. comparing both. And I said, you can't think of it as it's doing this. So I don't need an editor or it's going to do this. So I don't have to think about it or anything. That's the total wrong way to use it. Use it as a learning tool that also is helping you get all the right commas and spelling and stuff. Because I look at every single suggestion it makes and over time that I've been writing and using it, it's not catching all the same old mistakes I used to make. So I've been learning from it uh, as much as anything else. And AI in general, uh, so here's here's my scenario. I have a book out and I have two short stories that are prequels to that book. Now, I give those short stories away. Uh, They're not that long, but to go through an editor and get a a cover for it and everything else is, you know, what, a couple thousand dollars maybe for two stories. Well, do I want to spend $2,000 on these two short stories and then have to sell that many more of book one just to make it up and break even? Yeah, not right now. So I can use pro writing aid to go through that short story and it's, probably getting it good enough for uh, putting out there as a free short story into my main book, which does have an editor. And I can use mid journey to get a cover, you know, get it tweaked and all of that. And then instead of paying, uh, you know, three, $400 to somebody to, to make a cover from scratch, they just take this to modify it. And it costs me 50, 60 bucks to put on these short stories. Yeah. So is that a good or bad thing? I'm sure I'd get, people yelling at me saying, Oh, you shouldn't do that. You should. I understand that. But on the flip side, if you're trying to start going, you you can't push tens of thousands of dollars into it in the hopes that 10 years from now, you might make that back. Not everybody is able to do that. And this is a way to get you going. It's, it's one scenario. Yeah. I I totally agree. I totally agree. It was an interesting and forgive me if I've spoken about this before, but I was in a class. It's Joanna Penn led the class. She was the teacher, the, pro- the professor. And <laughs> did, she, did you call her professor? Did she like that? I wish I did. I hadn't, <laughs> didn't even think about it, but that would have been cool. Yeah. Professor, excuse me. <laughs> but she said a great use for AI is in, in her example was asking it how to add in the senses that I don't typically know how to put into my books. So like a lot of my, I have, a, I think it's called, is it white room syndrome, right? Where like, right. like, like you, you take your characters into this room and like, you don't really describe it enough. So it might as well just be a white room. Like right. you might say it's the bedroom. You might say it's the living room and the windows are open and there's some drapes, but like you don't say anything else. So like, I'm like, I just don't know what to say. Like, uh, what, do, what do you say? So you can have AI like, chat GPT or whatever, um, like sort of describe it, like, tell me about how I would describe the room, blah, 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 like that. And you can see, oh, here's what it describes. Now I'm not saying you would, I would not copy and paste that, but I would go, oh, I see what you mean. Right. Because what are the alternatives? I don't know what to do. I can flip open a book I have on my bookshelf. How did, um, how did Todd McCaffrey describe a room? right? Right. Oh, that's what he did. Okay. Now, well, how, how much time are you going to have to flip through his book that I've already read a bunch of times to find a room, the section that has a room, and then go, okay, this is how he used senses in there. Okay. Now I'm going to go and rewrite something in mind that uses that as inspiration. So ChatGPT did something like that. And uh, we did not do it live in class. We would do, we did it on paperwork, on paper, but like she led us through that same thing with, just focus on one sense. How could you, and she gave us some examples. Here's smell. And here's some examples of how you could use smell. And then like how to do these things. Well, if I can just go, how do I describe the smell of a hospital room, right? How do I describe this? I don't know. How do I describe the smell of a, of a house that's been, you know, sealed up for a hundred years with a leak in the, with leaks in the roof. It's going to tell me, and then I may, then I can put it into my own words, but sometimes I just don't even know where to start. And I, I've been hearing that a lot more, that that's the way to really use this stuff. Mid-Journey, Chat v, GPT, all the others out there is as a learning and inspiration tool, not necessarily brainstorming. I've used it for some stuff for brainstorming. Uh, hey, give me a list of blah, 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 and it does. And I'm like, okay. And then I start doing whatever. And it, it's 
it's like bouncing it off a partner if you don't have anybody else around. Exactly. So again, and in a way, isn't it like a very personalized writing prompt? Yeah. Like authors, I mean, I'm not a fan of writing. Like when somebody has them, here's the writing prompt for the day. I never do those things, right? I'm not. <laughs> I'm not know, a big fan like, of them either. Like I hated when my teachers in middle school and high school and college said, here's your writing prompt, write something. I didn't want to just, you know, tell me, give me a, I'd rather write about a theme or you know, whatever, I come up with my own writing prompt, but like, that's, this is sort of what that is. It's like, it prompts you on how to, you know, to get your brain going, get your juices flowing. And I think that's a really good use for it. Yeah. It could be abused because somebody could take this and they could paste it in. Yeah. Right. And yeah. So they're talking about like, then it's, then it's what, what kind of prompt are you putting in? Like, so you're, it's almost like having a collaborator. Yeah. I don't want to judge, but I what I would, would encourage authors to do is not put their head in the sand, not put their hand. And if you have a lot of science fiction fans out here, <laughs> if you do, Stephen, yes. if you've seen the, the um, Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, and I think it was 2008 or something like that. Uh, or Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Right. 2008. So, they kind of put their head in the sand. Like we're, we can't network our computers. We can't do these things. Technology has to stay back in the olden days because the AI is out there and it's going to, if we, if we, if we use it, if AI is going to win, well, what happened? AI just continued to win. All they found one loop, they found a loophole, but it wasn't AI. They found a human being right. to let them in with like, what's the, basically the equivalent of a USB key. Right. And, um, and then that was their way in, you know, right. right? And we've seen the same thing. Like, yeah, there was a, you know, there were, and then everything, the, the Cylons flipped a switch, everyone's down, they're in, right? right. So put you can't put your head in the sand, like an ostrich. Do you say ostrich or ostrich? I've heard both. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my son's big on, no, that's not how you pronounce it. And I'm like, oh man, you, you are so off. There are so many ways to say things <laughs> around the world. You yes. know? And I'm glad you mentioned the writing prompt because I've never been big on writing prompts either. I, I, I I think, okay, two things. I think our schools need a little bit more added in for writing and story with kids. Uh, We teach them grammar and spelling, but we do that from the start, but they don't connect it to telling stories. I think if they would tell stories earlier and then when they do the spelling and grammar, it makes more sense, Uh, just like using that. So I have on my website for teachers and kids and schools and parents, uh, I call them imagination inspirations. And it's, something different that's kind of like a writing prompt so like i was on vacation the one time and i took a picture of every dog i saw at the rest areas that was on vacation and said write the story of this dog or a dog on vacation uh and looking at the pictures i thought yes it's a prompt but i think looking at the pictures was better for a lot of kids than just a a a text sentence uh as a starter for a story so yeah I'm going to backtrack just a second because yeah. there is a time when I did like writing prompts. Okay. And it was when it was like, here's a bunch of writing prompts, pick one. Because then oh. it, it allowed me to choose a little bit about what I wanted to write about, not right. just just be, that, that, I think that's the part of the writing prompts that I don't like. And I'm reminded of that because one time one of my neighbors said they wanted, a, a, a teenager said um, he didn't know he wanted to be a writer. I, we were talking about, I was talking to his parents about my writing and he said, I want to be a writer. I just don't know what to write about. And I go, well, yeah, have you thought about some writing prompts? So I got, um, I already knew Brian Cohen and Brian Cohen has a bunch of writing prompt books. Right. So I ordered one of those books for him and he's like, well, how do I use it? I go, you can just flip through and find something that sounds interesting and then just start writing based on that. You don't have to go one, two, three, four, <laughs> use it however you want. And um, you know, he started writing so nice that's cool yeah. yeah all right well ai i'd love to find out more what uh, some other people are thinking and using i i mean obviously in the slack channel jay's mastermind uh thing there's a lot of talk about it i hear it on all the podcasts even though i'm like two months behind on podcasts um but you know it's all out there so i'm two months behind on some podcasts i'm up to date on some i just yeah. I, I don't have as much time to to, to listen to them anymore. So I have to like, I prioritize the right. certain ones, the ones that are more timely, you know? Right. Right. Well, yeah. 
it's it's now nice weather. I've got to start mowing. So it's a couple hours mowing each week. So I put the headphones on and catch up on my podcast. I used to like drive to get my kids to school and pick them up from their mothers and, you know, a lot of driving. So I got a lot of podcasts then. Now I don't do so much. So I don't get the podcasts in. And, and yeah. here I am. Everybody should be listening to my podcast, though. That's, That's right. That's right. Absolutely. That should All be right. the, top, the top priority. That's absolutely right. I had somebody ask me, it's like, so do you listen to the episodes? I'm like, oh, God, no. I don't have time to go back and listen to my own podcast. I'm listening to everybody else's podcast. I listen to it when I'm doing it and when I'm doing the production mm -hmm. afterwards. But once it's out there, I, you know, I'm, I move on. I subscribe to all the podcasts that I'm on and I listen to make sure that the quality, like, oh, you could hear my voice. I want to hear how I sounded, you right. know, but then as soon as I sort of starts, I've been done. <laughs> right. Yeah. Next. I was talking to Jay about that. He said uh, a lot of people he's been finding uh, for Writers Inc. Uh, would listen to that beginning part when they're all chatting and talking and then skip over the interview, hear the end part and move on to the next podcast. And that seems typical after you've listened to years worth of podcasts, like I've heard all of this before, you know? So yeah, that's interesting. Di yeah. Different stages. So, all right, sir. Well, I appreciate you getting on, taking some time. Thanks uh, for having me. It's great. Great fun. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I appreciate it. Thank you much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Stephen. You too. Take care. Bye, Thank everybody. You. Today on Discovered Wordsmiths, I want to welcome Ben Monroe. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Stephen. How are you? Good. Nice and sunny. Getting ready for springtime. A little chilly, but still sunny. <laughs> it's about the same out here, actually. Okay. And where is out here? Tell us a little bit about you, where you live, and some of the things you like to do besides writing. There you go. So I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, specifically the East Bay Area. I'm just south of Oakland. We've been having rains and storms and all kinds of craziness for the last few days. Last yeah. week, we got snow up in the hills, which probably isn't a big deal for you. But for us, it's wow, snow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know how to we don't know how to drive on that. So we just stay out of the mountains for hey. hills even. Yeah, I'm a East Bay native, pretty much. My folks moved to the Bay Area when I was about three years old in the early 70s. Things I like to do when I'm not writing, regular stuff, hang out with my family, watch movies. I'm a huge movie buff. I love, in fact, it's one of the great things about the East Bay here is we have, I think, 180,000 acres of usable open space. So there's plenty of hiking trails and stuff to, to do to get outside. Never hurting for things to do around here. We Beforehand, we were chatting. We found out we both like Weird Al. So yes. uh, that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm sure somebody doesn't, but oh yeah, <laughs> who cares what they think, right? <laughs> yeah, there's there's some TV show or something I saw where the one character mentioned Weird Al, and everyone goes, "How old are you?" It's like, oh, that shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> That's just wrong. <laughs> so what's, I agree. what's one of the favorite movies you've seen recently? Oh gosh, what is it? I actually haven't seen a lot in the last few weeks. I saw. Oh, you know what I watched recently? The Quick and the Dead, yeah. Sam Raimi western from yeah. the early '90s, which right. I hadn't seen in years. And it was great. It was just so much fun. Sharon Stone plays the, the uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the tough bitten gunslinger who comes back to town right. to take revenge on all the wrongs done to her. She was awesome. And it was funny because I was thinking at the time, that was like Sam Raimi's first mainstream movie. I think he had just done the Darkman movies or something, and then all the Evil Dead and stuff before that. And so this one was, while as nuts as it was very toned down from your usual Sam Raimi stuff, but you can still see those Sam Raimi trademarks closing in on a bullet and watching it tracking as it's shooting out of the gun through Gene Hackman's head. And <laughs> nice. So I, I think it's on Amazon Prime now. Okay. Yeah, I haven't actually That's seen right. that one. Though I do like a lot of the modern Westerns. My father was a big Western guy. Nice. Okay. So your book, I want to talk a little bit about that. It's called The Seething. Tell us a little bit about your book and why you wanted to write it. So the seating, it's a story about a family having a pretty bad vacation. They go to the mountains. They're kind of working some stuff out. They're one of those familiar transitionary places that a lot of families go through. And they're trying to figure out what they want to do next and what direction they're going. And they go back to stay in the childhood home of Gabe Barnes, who's the dad of the family. His father had passed away mysteriously three years earlier. And while they're there over the course of a week, they start coming into contact with the reason why the dad disappeared mysteriously a few years earlier. So there's a lake monsters and stuff, and it's nice. pretty creepy and scary. Hopefully. <laughs> it's not a romance. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. 
And why did you want to write this particular book? So go back to the East Bay Hills for a moment, because that was actually the genesis of the story. I was hiking around Lake Chabot, which is right on the edge of Oakland, Castro Valley, that kind of area, a few years ago, in the middle of one of our big droughts. And I was hiking around this lake, and there's little pontoons where the people can park a boat and get out and fish and do stuff. And the, the, boat, the, the, the floats go up and down as the water level. Because of this drought, I was noticing, because it was a place I was really enjoying hiking and running around for a couple of years, these floats were getting lower and lower and lower until they were basically resting on dry land. And the lake had receded so much that they were just sitting there. They weren't floating, they were just sitting Maybe this is a writer brain thing. I like to think it's a writer brain thing. It's definitely a my brain thing. I started looking at the thing going, wow. And I don't know why this popped into my head. I read a lot of horror. So I start thinking, wow, if there was a monster in that lake, it's a lot closer to the surface now <laughs> as the surface was coming down. So it, it'd be a lot easier for a monster to get you. And then that kind of started a train of thought of if, let's say you were a monster, a thing, right? And your habitat, your ecosystem was being eliminated what would you do to get out? How would you try to survive? And that's one of the central points of this book is how the thing in the lake is trying to get out of the habitat that it's been trapped in for many years as things are going weird. And so then it was just an idea that stuck in my head. At the time, I was writing a lot of short stories. And I kept thinking about that lake and that monster and just kept coming back. Well, so you have a cat too. Yeah, I kept, yeah, <laughs> I, I kept coming back to that idea. And then I started writing it and it just took off from there. Nice. And we're going to talk some more horror later. Do you read a lot of horror? Is that your favorite genre to read? That's my favorite genre. It's actually, it's primarily what I read. A little bit of nonfiction here and there, but I have, I don't know, I just I always fall into it. Aside from that, I've got a few fantasy authors that I enjoy. Most of them are sadly old, dead, white guys, Tolkien and people like that. C.S. Lewis, I love. And I think there's intersections between fantasy and horror, which maybe we can talk about later. But mostly for fiction, I read horror. Are there any books or authors that you can think of that are very similar to The Seething? When I was pitching the thing, a lot of the comparisons I were making were to things like The Shining, uh, Stephen King's The Shining, these Jaws, just for the sort of the ominous way he, and although honestly, I read the book a million years ago, I'm more familiar with the film, the way the water attacks were shot, so sinister and strange. While I was writing it, it's actually funny you mentioned how much of a fan your dad was of Westerns. While I was writing it, I was getting into Louis L'Amour. I was reading a lot of his stuff and reading a bunch of John Steinbeck as well, which doesn't seem really connected. But I was really getting into the way Steinbeck and L'Amour have a setting, especially a rural setting. My book is set up in the Sierra Nevadas. It's an imaginary version of the area around like Tahoe, Donner Pass, those kind of areas, so up in the mountains. And so I was really interested in the way they described a setting and made it feel so real in the natural sense, those things. And honestly, Crafts the Color Out of Space was a big influence on it as well. Oh, yeah, no. well, that was just recently a film that, eh, it was okay. I don't know if you saw it with Nicolas Cage. I didn't. It, it's, <laughs> I hate to say it, it's on my list to make it sound like I'm going to see it next week because my list is years long at this point. But it's right. it's one of those ones I'll see one of these days. Yeah, I, it was all right. It really tried to do something a little better and different than some past Lovecraft movie interpretations. Right. And the but, color has been made into a film a few times too. Right. So I'm curious to see what they did with this version. Yeah, it's got a definitely higher budget than most of the others. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the reader feedback been like for this book? The book actually doesn't come out until March 23rd, but there has been some advanced reviews up. There, are, I think there are five reviews on Goodreads at this point from some people that the publisher sent it off to, and it's all five-star reviews, and the reviews are pretty complimentary. Everyone who's read it seems to like it. I've heard back from a few HW, I'm sorry, Horror Writers Association colleagues that I'd sent early versions to, and they all really enjoy it. I think in answer to that question, the people who have read it have told me they like it <laughs> and I'm hoping they're telling the truth. So good. Great. Do you, if you had a choice, we've talked movies a little bit, movie fans, TV fans nowadays. Also, if you had a choice, would you like to see this turned into a movie or a TV show? A movie or a TV show. If I had my choice, <laughs> I would love a limited event series. That's what they call them now. I think right. it's the thing like a three to six episode 
long show of just that story. I like to think there's too much material in there to make one movie out of. That's because I'm in love with every word that I put in there. Right. And I'm sure a, com a competent screenwriter and director could get right to the really important points and get most of the points across. But um, I think it would do well as a limited run show. And it has an ensemble cast. There are enough different characters in it that I think it could be interesting. And it's, and it's told from a few different perspectives as the book goes along. So I think it would be interesting oh, nice. to, to play in that format a little bit. Nice. Now, typically, horror are standalone. Is this a standalone? And if so, what's your plans for your next book? As written, it's intended to be a standalone, yes. What I've been doing, though, with this book and just about every other short story, and honestly, the book that I'm working on right now, I'm creating sort of my own little setting, much like Lovecraft did with Arkham and Dunwich, King's main dairy, yeah. Castle Rock area. The settings in my stories, the main city is Alcosta, California, which is Alcosta is a Spanish word meaning is on the coast. It's down on the coast, about halfway between Santa Cruz and Santa Barbara is my imagining. And so there are connections between these stories, while none of them are really specifically sequels to each other or part of a series. Any one of them could be read in any order. Okay, good. So we were talking about authors and books. Oh, before I ask that, do you have a website that people could go to and check out all your books? I do. Yeah, definitely. Do check that out. A really complicated name. It's benmonroe.com. <laughs> Got it. Good. And it'll come right up. Just make sure you spell it right. If you don't, who knows where you'll end up. But you can, Somebody else you can trying to right swipe there. your name. <laughs> exactly. Some with that Monroe with a U. And yeah, you can find links. So I post links to places to buy all the anthologies that my stories have appeared in. I've got about a dozen short stories out over the last couple of years. You'll have links to The Seething. There'll be a link to this webcast probably in, in the next week or so as well. I, I put links to every appearance I make uh, gets up there on the media page. So if you ever wanted to know, you know a lot about me and watch me ramble on about monsters for hours and hours, that's the one-stop shopping for you. Got it. Cool. So you mentioned some good horror authors and like The Shining, which is one of my top three books of all time. So who, what are some of your favorite all-time books, all-time authors? Oh, gosh, so many. <laughs> I, I always like to throw out Lovecraft because Lovecraft was really my real introduction to real horror. As a kid, I had watched all the Universal Monster classics. I was into Wolfman and Godzilla, not Universal, all that stuff. And then I stumbled across a Lovecraft story when I was about, I think, eight or nine years old, The Outsider, which is great. And that sort of blew my mind. So Lovecraft, he's, he's seen as kind of problematic today, but he's still seminal to me. Big fan of Stephen King. Love his work. Some other authors more recent. Oh, gosh. I guess not really recent. Peter Straub I was getting into a few years ago. Poppy Z. Bright, uh, pen name of Billy Martin. I was really uh, read a lot of their stuff back in the early 90s in college. I was obsessed with Lost Souls. Kathy Coge's The Cypher is great. Recently, uh, oh, gosh. Grotesque Monster Stories by Lee Murray. It's a collection of really great short stories is good. And not out yet, but They Hide by Francesca Maria, another great collection of monster stories is coming out in April. I got a chance to read a oh. sneak peek of that. And that's, nice. that's a lot of fun. Nice. You mentioned uh, King and Straub. Did you read, what was the book they wrote together with Jack? Uh, the Talisman. Talisman. Talisman, the yeah. Black House. Oh. Have you read Black House? I haven't got to that one. I did a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Okay. Interesting. I it's fun when those guys, King did it in The Shining and Dr. Sleep, and then they did it in Talisman and the Black House. When they come back to those stories after so many years and right. see how this character has literally grown up in character studies. Yeah, so it, that's cool to hear. It's on my list. <laughs> it's on that list. Yeah, exactly, right? And I mentioned before we started about bookstores, do you have a local bookstore you like to go to? Sadly, no. <laughs> okay. I wish I did. There's there's Dark Carnival in Berkeley, which is a great store, a famous science fiction, imaginative fiction bookstore, which is just far enough out of the way that I don't get there very often. Sadly, I live in a town that really doesn't have any bookstores. I've got to go about 20 to 30 minutes out of my way in either direction to go to one. Uh, I got a couple of half price books in those directions, which I love. Uh, it's a treasure hunt when you go there. Dangerous um, store. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I should say, when I say I don't have any in town that I like, that's only because a new bookstore just opened a couple months ago. I think it's called Books, Inc. And I haven't had a chance to go there yet. So that's on my list, my list 
we're going to use that word a lot of things to do in the near future is swing by there and check them out because it looks like a great bookstore. Uh, nice. I just haven't had a chance to visit yet. If you stop, shoot me an email. I'd love to hear about it. I can put a link in for it. As, no, long, as, as long as they're good, which it's hard to ruin yeah. a good bookstore. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Unless it smells weird, I'm pretty much happy at any bookstore. You know? And even then, sometimes there's some charm to that. There can be. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about a few other things. We're going to talk about some classic horror and how the storytelling <laughs> that goes with classic horror. Before we run into that, though, if somebody came up to you on the street and said, hey, Ben, I heard you wrote a book. Why should I get your book and read it? What would you tell them? Because you feel sorry for me. <laughs> no, it's a good story. It's relatable. The characters in the story are pretty much every everyday Joes. They're just regular people with regular jobs. And then, and this my, this is actually my favorite kind of horror. And this is what I think King really does well. And go back to Lost Souls, that book that I love. I think that was really good as well. Regular people, when suddenly they're confronted by something so out of the ordinary, they just don't know what to do. You're having a regular life, and then you know a monster shows up. What do you do? And that's really what the seething is at its core. It's regular people having regular problems, and then the monster shows up. Nice. Good. All right. The seething. You mentioned some future books. What have you learned from when you first started writing and the short stories and the anthologies to the book you're working on now? What have you learned and what are you doing different? The main thing I've learned, I've come back to, is a couple things, but the main thing is really the difference between a short story and a novel. And obviously one's short and one's long. But when <clears throat> when I first started writing, a novel seemed overwhelming. It seemed, oh my God, how do you write a novel? Because you read a novel, it just takes a few days or maybe a week or two, depending on your schedule. And the idea of writing a novel, I don't have time to write a novel in a few days. Of course, nobody does that, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, got to get yourself in that mindset. And what really helped me shift, a few years ago, I was just out of sorts and I needed to do something to get some exercise, get out, get outside, do something. And so I took up trail running and yeah. which was a lot of fun of its own sort of thing. Like I said, I love being outside. I love being in the mountains and the hills. And so that was fun. And I started thinking a lot about the difference between basically sprints and long distance running. I could go for a short run around the block. That felt pretty good. If I was going to go for a 5k trail run, that was something I had to build myself up to. And so that became a metaphor for my writing process as well. Do the little short things. They're fun. They're good. They make you feel good. But then focus on that longer goal as well. So the novel became something that I could come back to over time. And when I wrote this evening, that was really how I did it. I wrote, I think, probably a dozen or more short stories in that same period. And I would just keep coming back to the sea thing. I follow a lot of open call groups on Facebook and keep an eye out for people who are looking for stories for anthologies. I have an idea. If an idea struck me and I couldn't get it out of my head, I would write that, send it in, go for it. And then go back to the seething and let the seething kind of bubble along as I was working on these other things. Okay, yeah, nice. That's... So for authors, one of the genres I've interviewed only a few people in is horror. And there's probably reasons for that, but it's one of my favorite genres. And you suggested, hey, let's chat a little bit about classic horror storytelling, which I was like, yes, please. Because partly because I love horror. I watch horror movies for two months around Halloween. I read horror novels. A friend and I do a, a horror movie review podcast. That's something else I do on the side. So I'm like, yes, let's talk about classic storytelling. I'm always bringing that up in the podcast about what I see in the, right. the movies. You mentioned all the old Universal and Hammer films and Godzilla and all of that, which I've read or I've watched also and a lot of classic horror Dracula from over a hundred years ago and some of the classic sci-fi horror from the twenties and thirties. I love that era and stuff. So what, First of all, why did you choose that as a topic, which, I, again, I thought was wonderful? And what have you learned from classic horror novels and stories that you're bringing in yours, like Lovecraft? It's interesting because if I asked you, I'm going to interview you for a second. If I sure. asked you, what's the, earliest, what's the earliest horror story you can think of? There's Frankenstein. And sure. And recently I've been reading Vampire from Polidari uh, uh -huh. and Camilla. 
I read those when I was doing a lot of vampire stuff. But you go all the way back and you got Gilgamesh, which is a horror. There you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm going. People think Frankenstein. People think Dracula. People don't think, if I say, what about the Odyssey? The guy yeah, curses yeah. the gods and the gods curse him back. And it's not, and you think of the Odyssey, you think of, oh, there's Odysseus on the boat with this guy. So they're sailing around and having adventures. They're sailing around, they're having adventures. They land on the island of Circe, who curses, again with the cursing, curses his men, turn them into pigs, and feeds them to the other sailors. That's horror. Yeah. They go a little further, and they end up on the Isle of Polyphemus, right? This giant who traps them in the cave, gets drunk, eats them live, right? Eats them. There's a description in the story where the, he gets so drunk, he starts vomiting up parts of guys, right? right? And then to get, then they get him back by sharpening this stick, ah, stick him right in the face with it, pop his eyeball, and then and that's gross and sad. And then and you shoot forward a few, few hundred or maybe a couple thousand years further, you got things like Beowulf, which again is seen as yes. an epic adventure story. The first couple chapters or stanzas or whatever you call them in that kind of poem are about Grendel, who's essentially Jason Voorhees you know, in, in another timeline, storming into the Hall of Herod and tearing these Vikings limb from limb. Yeah, Beowulf, finally, Beowulf finally fights, like rips his arm out of the socket, beats the monster over the head with it. I think there was actually a scene in one of the Friday the 13th movies where a guy is beaten to death with his own arm. And this is something I've been thinking about for a while now, and is actually very much an influence on the next book that I'm writing, the one that I'm working on now, which well, when I've gotten further into it, I'm happy to talk more about that, is that the horror story is at the roots of so much fiction. Going back to, I even think we don't have records of the old stories told around the campfire by the village wise man back in the Neolithic times. But I guarantee you, most of those stories were nobody go outside the circle of light or the demons will get you. Now, we know those demons are bears and wolves and mountain lions. Stone Age people didn't know what they were. It was that horrible, hairy monster with the fangs that would tear you limb from limb if you wandered outside the village. Yeah, another a great example. I think it's great because I came up with it. But uh, <laughs> an example I've used fairly frequently to explain this a little deeper is I look at the story of Red Riding Hood, right? The girl who goes into the woods to visit her grandmother gets there and her grandmother has basically been eaten by the monster and the monster has put on her clothing to trick people into, come on here, I'm a nice old lady right. and uh, let's have tea and then kill you and eat you too. And that's essentially the story of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. True. It's almost true. down to the identical monster. It's, just, it's interesting to me how for a genre that is seen as, ooh, horror, why do you want to read horror? It's, we've been doing this for thousands of years, as long as we've been people <laughs> as long as we've been able to tell each other stories we were warning each other not to do certain things i just read oh and i wish i could remember where i read it a while back that the best that, that the difference between horror and supernatural is horror happens as a build-up whereas then the i may have this wrong but then the supernatural happens afterwards and it's the horror that really gets us because it's those internal fears those parts of us that we're afraid of the dark we're afraid of what's hiding right. under the bed and all that and like you said it's been going on for centuries and when people say things like that oh why would you want to read horror my buddy Reese says horror is one of the only genres where there's something for everybody. If you have a romance, you know what romance is. If you have a sci-fi, you pretty much know what sci-fi is. But horror can be, there can be a romance horror. There can be a romance sci-fi or a horror sci-fi. And horror has so many, some people, like I don't really like the slasher movies. I don't think they're interesting. But some sure. people think that's horror. And that's all horror is. But then you get something like Crimson Peak with a lot of rich details and atmosphere. And that's much more gothic horror. I, I think you're right that we all have that little secret fear inside us. And we want, why do people ride roller coasters? <laughs> and I think it's interesting that horror, sidestep for a moment, I like to think horror, I know it's a genre, it's a book category, so it's clearly a genre. I always like to think of it more as a tone than a specific genre. If I told you it's a horror story, that doesn't tell me anything. If I tell you it's, like again, about the seething or Stephen King stuff, it's a story about everyday people having everyday lives, and then there's horror added on to that. That's a little more descriptive. And so to me, horror, I like to think of it more, like I said, I'm repeating myself, as a tone rather than specifically always a genre. 
And I also think in that regard, it's really interesting that horror, we call it a genre for now, is the only genre that's named after an emotion, right? Can you think of it? I always dance around romance because maybe they call them love stories too sometimes, and that's an emotion as well. But you don't feel action. You don't feel science fiction. You feel horror gets you. Very true. And different people are horrified by different things, which is another great uh, reason to read it. Because again, you can find something. Goosebumps will scare some eight to 10 year olds. Really? They got to keep the lights on. But when we read it, it's corny and tongue in cheek. But I know when my kids were little and read Goosebumps, man, some of those freaked the kids out. But I would I was different. I read The Shining when I was like 10. But most 10-year-olds <laughs> aren't reading The Shining because yeah, exactly. it's total but it's also told in a different way. So horror and then the Walking Dead is completely different from either one of those. So what are some of the classic tropes in horror that you think help help or hurt horror? Oh gosh. I think I think an over-reliance on splatter and gore and the really the in-your-face stuff doesn't help. Everything's got a moment for it, but I think a good build-up and then something shocking is more effective than just shock, shock. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Go back to King for a minute. He had a thing, I think it was in On Writing, where he described the what he calls the three types of horror. One is horror, which is the existential weirdness going on. His example was, it's when you walk into your house and realize that everything in it has been replaced with an exact duplicate. You know, that's, whoa, what? That's unsettling. Terror is feeling that clammy hand on your shoulder while you're looking at your house and trying to figure out. And then he says that the third type is gore, which is the eyeballs exploding. It's the monster behind you biting your head off and squish going everywhere. And I love that, that he says he'll always try for horror, but if he can't get there, he'll shoot for terror. And if that's not working, he'll go for gore. He says, I'm not proud. I just want to get to the effect. And I I think he does tend to hover between horror and terror more often than not. But when he does gore, it's great. That's the answer to the question. Yeah, I think. And stuff that works, I love a slow buildup. Anything I like to describe with some horror stories is a chili pepper story. And I I hope the seething is one of those where you take a bite of something spicy and it's, ooh, spicy but by the time you're like the fifth or sixth bite like i can't take this anymore it's too hot put it away it's too much that's what i really like that build up that just keeps getting worse and worse until you i can't take this anymore but there's still five chapters left in the book (laughs) and i can't put it down exactly i gotta finish it it's so good but it's too hot and right i had that definite experience when i was younger i was reading the Amityville horror my parents had gone out and i was in the middle of the book and realized it was like 10 o'clock at night pitch black, except for the one light above where I was, everything else was dark. I did not move until the my parents came right. home. And, oh man, I shouldn't have said that because now I lost my train of thought what we were talking about. I'm sure it was a good idea. It was yeah, a great was one. I, it would have made everything. It would have been <laughs> monumental. You would have got the Pulitzer Prize for YouTubing and everything, right? Yeah, man. You know, the opportunities pass. Oh, In another world. It. I got it. So I agree with you on the slow burn, totally. And good horror needs that. You can't, it's, I said earlier, horror and terror. You said it, not horror and supernatural. Yes. Good, scary stuff needs that horror. It needs that slow buildup. It can't exist when it just starts off jumping out at you. I've been in a critique group where somebody was reading their horror, the first couple pages, chapter or whatever of their horror story. And there's these two guys in there that immediately jump on them. Like, no one's ever going to buy this. It's horrible because you don't tell us anything about what's going on. You don't give us that this character we've been following is actually a ghost and blah, blah. And I'm like, hold on. You're totally wrong. You guys write mystery and action thriller. Totally different than horror. If you start, if you cut out the first two chapters that this guy read and just start with this ghost, nobody will care in the horror genre. It'll be horrible. In fact, I would tell him he said the ghost a little too early that you should have let it build more and given us some hints and stuff like the movie, the others with Nicole Kidman slowly dawns on you that, Oh my God, they're the ghosts or Sixth Sense or something like that. Spoiler. (laughs) Yes, but hey, if you haven't seen the others or Sixth Sense, it's about time. They're old enough. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
I was just going to point out anybody watching this who hasn't seen the others, of course, now you know the, the spoiler, definitely go see it. It was completely eclipsed. It came out the same, almost within months of The Sixth Sense. And it just, everyone saw The Sixth Sense, nobody saw the others. I don't, I, you're actually the first person I've met in years who's just randomly brought it up. So kudos on you. It's Me absolutely worth watching. Me and my buddy Reese reviewed the others on our podcast. Oh, nice. And it was fantastic because you're going, it's, it was done very well that you're picking up on what's happening in slow increments if you're right. really paying attention. If you're not, it's a total surprise at the end. But you asked him earlier what good horror movies I'd seen lately. And that comment actually just made me remember one. I think it was a Shutter original. It came out right before Christmas called The Apology, which was great. It's not a supernatural horror story. It's more of a thriller kind of thing. It gets really squishy toward the end. And it's one of those things where you're watching it. This is this is basically two people having a conversation for a couple hours. It's getting weirder and darker until you figure out what the point, what one character's point in having this entire conversation is. And then you're like, oh, crap, this is terrible. <laughs> this is horrible. And then everything just escalates or de-escalates. Down, goes to hell in a handbasket from there. That's So the apology, probably, it's at least on a shutter, if not elsewhere, it's okay. definitely worth watching. Yeah, we. it sounds a little bit like the autopsy of Jane Doe. Yes. So, yeah, that's a slow burn. <laughs> great. And it's learning things. And yeah. And I, I think that's something, going back to your comment about the writers group earlier, I think, at least for me, I can't speak for all horror writers and readers, but that's something I really like as a horror aficionado is getting into a story and just like, I'm just going to trust the storytellers and see where this goes. And Jane Doe, the autopsy of Jane Doe is a great example of that. It's just sinister and ominous and things are getting weirder and weirder. And you're like, okay. And right. then when you start figuring out what's actually going on and the supernatural elements come up, it's really exciting. It's thrilling because it's just, okay, here we go. This is where it's starting to get really cool. <laughs> right. Yep. All right, Ben, it's been a wonderful conversation. I love talking horror. I don't get that very right. often on here. Before we go, though, again, your book's The Seething. I'll put links in the show notes to your website. Do you have any last-minute advice you would give to new authors? Oh, gosh, new authors. So I've really only been writing fiction for about four or five years now. My first novel, In the Belly of the Beast and Other Tales of Cthulhu Wars, actually a collection and novel, came out about five years ago. And I had so much fun, I just kept going. And that, to me, that was a logjam breaking moment. I had been wanting to write fiction for so long. Um, I had a lot of stuff in my head that was keeping me from doing it. And so the quick version of all of that distilled into answering your question is don't sweat rejections. People are going to not like what you're writing, and you can't let that you can't let that get the best of you. Just keep writing, do it. You're going to find your audience. If you're enthusiastic about what you're writing, you're going to find other people who are as well. And the people that reject your stories are just the people that aren't interested in what you're specifically saying at that time. And that might just be, it primarily is based on their own preconceptions. They like something that you, it's different from what you like. Think about every time you've had a conversation with a friend about a movie you really enjoyed and they didn't like, doesn't mean that your opinion's bad, just means that you like something they didn't, art is the same way. And so just write it, just sit your ass in the chair and start writing. And there's so many avenues nowadays to reach people and different audiences and people are wanting more specific things and they enjoy the stuff, not the necessarily big names on the shelves, the same old, there's lots of people wanting different. So yeah, I agree. That's a, a new world out there. Small press and indie horror is thriving right now. So this is a great time to get started. Nice. Great. All right, Ben, wonderful talk. I'll make sure and let you know when it's live and I wish you luck on the seething. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, it was. Hi, if you enjoyed this episode of Discovered Wordsmiths, please support the author. Go to their website, go to Amazon, look them up, get the book. And if you click on the link that I have in the show notes, you'll also help support the podcast so I can keep the hosting and all the software I use and uh, keep it running for to help more authors. When I am recording this, we've got over a hundred episodes, lots of authors go to the website, discoveredwordsmiths.com. Check it out. There's a lot of great authors, probably in some genre that you love. See what they have. Check out their books. 
that's what the point of the podcast is for. So people can discover new authors, find some new books they love, support the authors so they can continue writing. So please support them. And if you do like the podcast, if you've been thinking of podcasting or you're a writer, I've got some links also at the website. Click on those if you're interested in any of the software or services that I talk about. Everything that I have there is something I use. So I've got an affiliate link. Again, it's a little bit, if everyone clicked on those, if they were going to get it anyway, it helps keep the podcast going. So let's all help each other out, discover more authors to read. Thank you for listening to Discovered Wordsmiths. Come back next week and listen to another author discuss the road they've traveled and maybe sometime in the near future, it might be you. 